dónde va por ahí, familiario? En esta noche tan fea. Usted no se anima. Mire cómo está el camino. Anegadito. No, hombre, compa. El camino es lo de Welcome to the fifth episode of Anthropological Airwaves. My name is Arjun Shankar, postdoctoral fellow at the University of Pennsylvania and lecturer at Hamilton College. I think this episode really captures what this podcast is all about. Critical, incisive, ethnographically grounded scholarship by politically aware scholars grappling with the dilemmas that come with being deeply enmeshed in public debates that have real impacts for extremely vulnerable populations. In this episode, you'll hear from Jason DeLeon of the University of Michigan and Hilary Dick of Arcadia University, together who situate Trump's build-the-wall rhetoric within the ongoing discussions regarding illegal immigration in the United States. I think what both want us to really think with as we enter this episode is one- how the discourse on illegal immigration is heavily racialized and grounded in a complex historical understanding as to who is a native of the United States. And second, I think what they really want us to see is the connection between their scholarship and these highly charged political public discourses. Indeed, I think Jason is especially direct in his critique of many anthropologists who somehow still see public anthropology as somehow outside of or maybe epiphenomenal to some imagined real or legitimate anthropological project. I think that's what I'd like to go into this episode thinking about as we listen in. And with that, I'll pass it to Diego Arispe-Pazan, graduate student at the University of Pennsylvania. Please enjoy. So I am Diego Arispe-Bazan, and I'm here with Jason De Leon, who is a professor at the University of Michigan. Your project, the Undocumented Migrant Project, incorporates a bunch of different forms of data collection and knowledge production and presentation from different subdisciplines and, and disciplines across the board. So I was wondering how the project looked like from the beginning, from the outset, or did that happen later when you were like, well, maybe I want to incorporate media stuff, I want to incorporate... Um, you know, a team of ethnographers or, you know. You know, it's all been pretty organic. You know, I'm always thinking about it in terms of the kind of next product that I want to produce. And so right now, you know, it's funny, I actually tried to do, to move away from the immigration stuff a couple of years ago. And I was like, okay, I finished with Arizona. I want to do now stuff on, I wanted to do stuff on the cops. I wanted to do, do a project on forensic scientists. And I started kind of doing that. And then we did a field season in Mexico and I got really interested in smugglers. And so then now that sort of brought me back into the fold. And so, um, you know, all the stuff that I've been doing still kind of falls under the rubric of the Undocumented Immigration Project. But I guess the, the questions that I'm interested in, in asking underneath that kind of rubric have been evolving. And so now the two big things I'm, I'm doing are this sort of photoethnography of smuggling, Central American smugglers, and then kind of getting back to some forensic stuff in Arizona, um, but looking more now at... Um, kind of the more technical parts of forensic science and trying to incorporate that back into, you know, this overall kind of anthropological narrative that, that really really bridges the gap between forensics and, and ethnography. Uh, but so that's kind of where, if, you had to, if I had to pitch a, a, a book project or something, it would be one on a visuality of smuggling and then another one on, um, on migrant death in Arizona and kind of looking at the ways in which the federal government has neglected this problem 
and how there's nobody looking for bodies. There's no federal agency actively trying to to deal with this humanitarian crisis. So, that, so that I, I, and I've I've sort of come back to that I think partly because of this um, personal desire to to try to help. You know, really, it's this the family of this of this kid Jose Takuri. I mean, that story really affected me so much, and he's still missing. And so I think that being interested in the forensic stuff is part of that kind of lingering problem of, you know, where is he? And I'm not super optimistic that we're ever going to find him, but I feel like I'm at least in a position where I can do research around that issue and perhaps we can find somebody. Marisol is one of about 5,600 bodies that have been recovered in the desert and in the southern border since 1998. So one of, of, of many, many people. What this project has tried to do is offer a counter to the, the dominant sort of uh, uh, way that Americans think about undocumented migration. Typically, um, we get our information from some primary media sources, most of which focus on um, issues of legality and um, perspectives from law enforcement. And what this project has tried to do is say, okay, what does it look like from the other side? Right? Uh, what, 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 what do the people themselves say about this process, and who are, the, who are these, these millions of undocumented people, and what are their stories? I wanted to know how you saw your work engaging with the new political situation, if you think not much will change, or, or where do you see uh, your work going in light of this, these changes? I mean, I feel like I'm asking the same types of questions. Um, I think I'm still being, maybe I'm just being louder about my sort of criticisms of like the ways in which our political system is brutalizing people. Um, it's almost now like I, it's, that's been really amplified. If anything, I think it's almost you worry about burnout, like um, where before I could scream and shout about immigration and then people would say, oh, maybe, okay, cool. But now it's like you can't even, it's inescapable. People are asking me, like, oh, what about ICE? What about these immigration rates? What about all this stuff? And so it's almost like um, this, this, uh, this external pressure to say, okay, well, you're the person who studies this, so now tell us about it. Um, what are you going to do about this now? I'm like, man, people who study these particular issues have been saying that for a really long time. Um, so that's been kind of an interesting moment to see colleagues and friends becoming more political in some ways, but maybe perhaps not seeing the connection between the work that they do and the things that are happening, you know, kind of on the street. And we need to get to that point where you're already doing work that could speak to these issues and you just need to be better at now, I think, being a more, using these platforms, um, using new platforms to present the knowledge that you are, you know, producing about these, about these issues. That's where I think we really need to go. And I, and I hope that in this moment that people will We'll start to do that and start to, um, you know, we all need to be public anthropologists now. You know, coming out of this discipline where there's a lot of expectations about what you're going to produce and, and I'm really trying to fight it now where I want to write books and I want to write books for um, a much wider audience and not in a, in a kind of light way or a dumbed down way, but really just in an accessible way and to maintain the rigorousness of the research, to maintain the theoretical richness, but... Uh, without having to use, you know, um, an entire dictionary of $100 words. And especially now, I mean, I felt like two years ago, a year ago, people would say things like, oh, you're, you're a public anthropologist or engaged or all these buzzwords that I don't, that I don't ever use to, 
describe myself, when people would say those things, oh, you're a public anthropologist, um, oftentimes it's a slight, you're not, you're not really an, an, you know, an academic kind of thing. And, um, and I used to be like, oh, you know, if, 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 if you're making a distinction between people who do public anthropology, then what is the type of anthropology that you do? Right. What is, is this the non-public anthropology? I mean, um, the non-engaged. And I think that increasingly in this political moment now, we, we can't have these distinctions anymore. Um, but the audience isn't. I mean, that's such a crucial question because I think that most of the time, implicitly, our audience that we write for is, are just other, other academics. What is one idea that you think might be helpful in working through how do we engage with the public? I think that just on a like nuts and bolts level, I think about the reader as not just this kind of generic kind of audience out there that, that, that's interested in anthropology, but that reader who's sitting on a train or a bus or you know in their room reading this book, and how are they engaging with these words? And so I, I think we can learn a lot from, from just uh, thinking about writing as practice itself. Well, and I, and I like that you sort of have been saying that anthropologists are the ones that can speak to a lot of these issues, but what, I mean, why do you get that sense? I think we lack the, author, the authoritative confidence that comes, that, that other social scientists perhaps have. I think, I think for me, good ethnography is one that is anxiety-ridden because it's like, it's so incomplete and you know and did I screw the story up by just even being there doing these sorts of things um, so I think we're producing interesting social science research um, that is important for helping us understand the world but I think we're questioning what are we doing and we're looking at other people who claim to do ethnography and going yeah I don't know I, I'm real skeptical um, I mean participant observation Okay, you, that, that is not the same thing as writing an ethnography. And uh, just because you went hung out with people doesn't mean that, um, that you're really doing anthropology. And I think that people who, who claim to do ethnography in other genres, other disciplines, oftentimes don't come with it, with the, the nervousness that we tend to have. And I like that nervousness. Whereas other folks, these kind of authoritative um, um, folks in other, in other disciplines, don't necessarily have that. And I think that's really off-putting to, um, to, to the general public because like, oh, here are these snooty academics telling me how to think about this sort of stuff. We're touchy-feely, right, as a discipline, and I like that. We, we, we're, we can be scientific, we can collect data in different sorts of ways, we can present it in all sorts of interesting ways, and, uh, and, I, and I hope that, that that makes us kind of the best position to, to speak to the things that are happening right now. Um, I mean, one of the things that People asked about, um, like even with the with, with with my book at the end, they were like, "Well, could you make some like policy recommendations? You know, could, could you kind of resolve the story?" And I was like, "No," but I struggle with like immigration policy. It's so complex. Where do you even start? I would say, "Well, let's go to Central America, and Mexico, and see what we can do to help political stability, economic, you know, productivity there, so people don't have to migrate." I mean, that's a that's an unpopular kind of policy proposal, um, but that's an important that's an important part of the puzzle. Um, and maybe, I mean, I, I sort of think about this whole idea about the the cutting of food programs for for kids. It's just happened in the last couple of days, and people are saying, well, the the data doesn't 
you know, doesn't show this. Um, the, the, the data shows that, that these programs don't help kids. And then, of course, people are saying, no, we have the data that says that these programs actually do help kids. Here are the numbers, here are the charts, and that sort of thing. Are those charts really effective? Or do we also need any other politics to come in there and say, let me tell you about, about Jimmy, Melissa. Let me tell you about, you know, um, Mariana and, and how these programs affect, affect their, their, their school experience. Uh, it's finding some kind of way to, to, to bring that in because I think a lot of times too that those, that the qualitative data can be more impactful. Um, I mean, I, much more than the numbers, but it's, it, it's, it's how do you translate that into policy? That's a difficult thing. Uh, something that I was thinking about a lot with this talk about the wall and building a wall and how, you know, who's going to pay for the wall, which was something that started early last year, um, mm -hmm. these conversations about building the wall. I think your research makes it clear that there's always been a wall, sometimes mm -hmm. through people's homes and beyond the cost and who's going to pay for it, which is definitely important, is also the fact that it's this symbol that people attach themselves to, for example, at high schools where you see videos of children yelling at their Hispanic and no. Latino populations build the wall. So I guess what I wanted to ask is what you thought, I mean, a little bit about this notion of the wall as a symbol. Well, I went to a Trump rally in, in Warren, Michigan, February of last year. And, and it's just a room full of Michiganders chanting build a wall for like almost an hour before he comes out. And of course it's me and a, a Mexican friend. <laughs> and I just remember thinking like, you know, build a wall, build a wall. Like that's, a, that's the more politically correct way to just say it. I have so many misconceptions and if I can't build a wall, it's really about, it's about security, right? It's about protecting America not about how much I hate people who look differently from me. And I think that, um, that we have found kinds of new ways to be racist and to be discriminatory in, we've put this new kind of linguistic veneer on it, all lives matter, right? These things that, that are, in, there's so much racism and, and horribleness embedded in those things, but you can say them out loud these days and, and I think that there's a lot of interesting linguistic work to be done around this kind of this shift in discourse and the way in which it becomes loaded with all this kind of other meaning. I'm working 12 hours a day getting $6 an hour because I'm undocumented. Still, people say that I'm a terrorist. I've been living in constant fear of deportation for 13 years now. I've been here since I was four. America's all I know. Now I'm terrified of being sent back to a country I don't know. I've been feeling depressed because I don't know if my hard work is going to amount to anything since I'm undocumented. I hide my undocumented status from my significant other because I don't want him thinking I'll use him to get a green card. I would cry myself to sleep because people thought I was a bad person for not having documents. I'm not a bad person. Now, uh, a lot of Americans worried about uh, Trump's plans to build the border wall between the U.S. and Mexico. We've got a border. The southern border is like a piece of Swiss cheese, and we'll talk about it. We will build the wall. Yes, we will. I'm here with Hillary Parsons-Dick, professor at Arcadia University. 
I wanted to open with a conversation about how your research engages with the issues of, of immigration. One long-term project that started with my dissertation research became a look at how what I call migration discourse talk can be explicitly about the subject of migration, but also I use that as an umbrella term to refer to when people invoke images of personhood or ideas about here and there that are connected to immigration. And what I'm really interested in that is in how talk about migration and also writing about migration, including policy, is a form of participation in the state and critique of the state more than really being about migration itself. Starting to work on an article right now about, you know, the wall and discourses around the wall like we were talking about. And, um, um, but I'm also very interested in immigration policy and how, you know, the, the discourses that kind of lead up to and enable certain policies. You mentioned the wall and I wanted to hear more about that. Well, so one of the things that strikes me as, as curious about and I was saying this to my students all semester, was there is actually already a wall. That never gets mentioned. Trump's vision of a wall, quote unquote, is that it will cover the entire border. But there's already been several, I mean, we've been fortifying and militarizing our southern border with Mexico since the 1980s, including several waves of newer and bigger and longer border walls. We've been militarizing our border and profiting off of the degradation of human life along that border for many, many decades now. And so I get a little frustrated that the ways that that, that can fall out of the conversation and build the wall is the apotheosis of the worst part of our immigration policy, but it's not new. So if we vote him out of office, that doesn't get rid of the underlying problem, which is that the global economy has created vast income inequality everywhere, and immigrants get scapegoated for it, violently. And then they're being thrown into detention centers that are increasingly run by private companies who profit off of having bodies in their centers and also use them as labor. So one of the main private correction facility companies in the U.S. is the GEO Group, and they're being sued right now in Colorado for using people as labor, and some people are getting paid as little as, I forget the figures, 25 cents a day or something like that. I mean, it's very similar to what's happening with mass incarceration and private prisons. And I do find it kind of endlessly fascinating, like, why is that so important? Like, the people who are steadfastly sticking to Trump it's because, oh, well, he was willing to say that real stuff about immigration that no one else will say because they're so PC. Like, yeah, we know that all those Mexicans really are rapists and criminals, and we need to build that wall. I mean, the wall is interesting, too, because it coalesces as this uh, icon that then people latch onto, and then all the stuff gets built around it discursively and constantly. But so I wanted to think a little bit, of, if you could talk a little bit about that specifically, how you bring the tools of linguistic anthropology to the study of immigration and, and immigration policy. Uh, right, so think about debates about immigration policy. To me, those are really come down to contests over images of personhood, right? So who are, who are migrants? Are they dangerous, law-breaking rapists and criminals? Or are they hard-working, tax-paying, potential future citizens? And who gets put into which category often goes hand-in-hand -hand with processes of racialization. 
I will always put it this way to my students, right? When we talk about undocumented migration, what's the image that comes to your mind? It's probably not the Swedish nanny who overstayed her work visa, but she's also an undocumented immigrant. And this is another way, though, that Trump's kind of interesting, but up until Trump, uh, the, the racializing discourses around immigration in the United States were really, some call them covert. I think I've called them covert before, but I, I often hear Jonathan Rosa's voice in my head when I say that because he's always like, well, covert to whom? Because they're not covert at all to certain people. Certain people know exactly who's being racialized and how, and usually it's because you're the target of that racializing discourse. So it's not denotationally explicit the way our immigration policy used to be. Like, we don't want anyone from Asia to come to the United States, or we want more Northern Europeans than Southern Europeans. And then we had a big reform of immigration policy in the 1960s, and it was supposed to be colorblind, and yet we still have this process where certain groups of people are disproportionately affected by immigration restrictions, and certain populations of migrants are treated as criminal and dangerous, and they tend to be people from Latin America and now increasingly in the Middle East, too, of course. So how does that happen, right? How do immigration policies that don't single out groups of people in their denotational content nevertheless have the effect over time of singling out groups of people? So you have to look at how both at this sort of genealogical scale, right, of policies across time and then also the more immediate scale of literal replication of text across contemporary policy, that through those processes we've come to create a conflation between the quote-unquote illegal immigrant and this image of the Mexican other as an unassimilatable, un-American figure. Even in parts of the country which from 1848 when our southern border moved south to pretty recently were majority Mexican-American population because it had been part of Mexico. And that's true too with Native Americans, right? The story of the nation of immigrants as opposed to the nation of invaders, for example. Um, and as, you know, even the term nativism recently has been all about white Americans asserting that they're the real Americans, which I think is sort of a perversion of the idea of it. I mean, it makes sense because it's a nativization of a population, taking over even the term native to make it about settler colonials asserting themselves as the real citizens and the real proprietors of land seems devious and gross. Yeah, I mean, well, it certainly rests on a zero-sum game, that there's a limited set of goods and only so many people can get them and so how do we decide who's in and who's out so it does have I think very gross base kind of motivation even if that's not people's conscious motivation right and one of the things that interests me is other parts of the United States that in the last 10 years have become suddenly immigrant receiving areas where here I'm thinking of the case of Hazleton, Pennsylvania, becomes designated a keystone area by the state which allows them to give companies tax breaks to kind of create incentives for the development of local industry. They recruit this meatpacking company and they start recruiting immigrant labor. And so there you are, people in Hazleton still don't have jobs. <laughs> this, they, they gave this tax break to this large company that then recruited cheaper labor from somewhere else. So they're entitled to be angry about that. The problem is they directed at the immigrants and they're not the cause or the problem. And that's something that I also wanted to chat with you. And I think it's the running theme of our podcast is 
how do we make these things approachable? Or I mean, not just linguistic anthropology, although also linguistic anthropology, but how do we make the topics of a research approachable to folks? So if you want to affect change in the discourse around immigration, like, okay, let's, let's clean out the words that are bad. Let's encourage the press not to use the term illegal immigrant as a value-neutral term. And it's not a value-neutral term. It indexes a certain set of political stances where you care more about someone's temporary immigration status than about their personhood. It's about historical patterns of and conflations between images so that it can become something where we can all say illegal immigrant or those illegals. And most people will imagine someone from Mexico. Thank you all for listening in with us, and I hope you really took away something useful to think about your research and public engagement. And the next episode is probably one I'm most excited about, just given my own research pretensions. And it's on multimodal and visual anthropology. We'll be interviewing Carolyn Rouse of Princeton University and Brent Luvas of Drexel University. So please do tune in then. Thanks. <laughs>